Well, good evening to you. I cannot believe we have made it through 10, is this 10 weeks? Yes, 10 weeks of study. We have come to the end of our study of the first chapter, 11 chapters of Genesis. And I don't know about you, but I know that my mind has been sharpened. My spirit has been enriched and been greatly encouraged. Uh, before we jump into the last um, two chapters of our study this week, I just wanted to kind of share something with you of personal nature and ask you for some prayer, really. Um, Sunday morning, many of you are aware my mom deals with heart issues. Um, she, 15 years ago, had a valve replacement and they did, or excuse me, repair, and um, when they did open heart surgery. And since then, she's been under the um, careful care of several doctors. And um, early Sunday morning, she woke up with chest pains. And so, you know, we don't mess around with that. So dad got up, they took her to the ER right away, and um, thankfully, she, was, she stabilized quickly, all was well. Um, dad called me about 5.45, and um, he asked if Allison or I could come and sit with her because he needed to come preach. And um, she was fine. He would not have left her if she was not fine. Um, but she was telling him, go, go, go. So um, anyways, with that, the, the doctors decided to um, admit her, and they did a heart cath on Monday night, and then thankfully she was able to go home. And in the words of the doctor, um, everything looked beautiful. He said it looked absolutely beautiful. So we are, yes, so thankful for that. Very, very grateful for God's goodness there and um, reminders of his provision. But one little snag with that heart cath um, and because of the chest pains, her doctor, she told him she was supposed to go to Alaska on Thursday. She's like, I'm going to need to go to Alaska. And he's like, you're not going to Alaska. Um, she and I were supposed to go and lead a women's retreat this weekend at True North Church, our, one of our partner mission partnering churches in Anchorage. And the doctor said no. So we quickly uh, recalibrated very as quickly as we could and um, the worship, their, their worship team's going to be able to cover the music, and I'm going to shift over, and I'm going to um, present the three lessons throughout the retreat this weekend. Um, and then I'm thankful um, that I don't have to travel by myself. My dear friend, Erin Herrenbrook, was able to clear her schedule and get her three kids taken care of, and with her husband's blessing, she's coming with me. So would you be in prayer for us this week um, as we go to Anchorage and Really, our heart's desire is we want to be a blessing to those women. We never want to be a burden. We just want to be a blessing to them. So um, I'll be speaking on Friday night and twice on Saturday and um, looking forward to 13 hours of travel tomorrow so we can figure out what we're going to share this weekend. <laughs> so I would greatly appreciate that. But, um, and, and thank you, too, for your continued prayers and concern for my mom. Um, and uh, as, as you know, these things are, require a lot of prayer and um, discernment from the Lord. So God's taking care of her, and we continue to pray that the Lord would continually preserve her life for many more years of kingdom service. And I know that's her prayer as well. So, um, But let's talk about Genesis 10 and 11. And before we do, as you're turning your Bibles to Genesis 10, I want to ask you a question. How do you feel about mirrors? Do you love them? You look at them and you're like, oh, I like what I see there. Yes. Or do you avoid them like the plague? Um, run far away from the mirrors, right? And especially the ones that we really don't love. Do you know which ones I'm talking about? The magnifying mirror. And why do they have lights on them? 
Like we need to like light up and put a spotlight on all the imperfections and all the lines and all the things, right? Mirrors, we generally don't love them, right? Um, I tend to um, lean away from looking at anything that shows me my imperfections. Um, you know, that's why I like on my cell phone, when I take a picture, um, I like the filters. Are you familiar with the filters, ladies? Some of you are, some of you love them like I do. Um, for those of you that are not aware of a filter is on your cell phone, I'm about to rock your world in your picture taking abilities with your cell phone because what you can do is you can find a different, and it'll literally put like a, a filter over the picture so it softens the hard lines, it blurs and minimizes those imperfections. If only I could like get it to give me a little more color um, in the roots, if I could figure that filter out while my grow out is happening, that'd be fantastic. Filters, we tend to like wanna see that, a filtered picture of ourselves as opposed to the mirror, what's actually there, right? Well, some of us spiritually, we would rather avoid the mirror of the word of God. The word is described as a mirror. And instead, we tend to gravitate towards other literature, other things that soften the hard lines of our lives, the other things that um, filter out our flaws and make us feel better about ourselves, right? We want to be and see and read things that make us feel better when all the while God is saying, I have given you my word. Why are you avoiding it? Why are you listening to secondhand truth being given to you? Listen to my word, we cannot do that and grow to become like Jesus. He calls us to action as we take a hard and honest look through the mirror of the word of God. James 1.22 says this, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forget what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, it says, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Well, my prayer for you and I, the women of Refresher here at First Baptist Church Naples, is that you and I would not just weekly hear of the word of truth and our hearts may be stirred a little bit, maybe made to feel better about ourselves, but that we would be stirred to action that we would be not just hearers of the word, but that we would be doers of it also. But to be a hearer and a doer, we've got to take a long look at the mirror of the word of God. So tonight, in this study, we're gonna take one final long look and hold up the mirror of God's word to our own hearts. And we will see what the Lord shows us there. And tonight, my prayer is that you and I would heed the warning that God gives us as we read about the establishment of two major entities. So you have already turned to Genesis 10. So we're going to look at what, we, what is called the table of nations. This is called the table of nations by, by theologians. And let's read verse 1 to see the purpose of this chapter. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, sons were born to them after the flood. We're going to read this, the purpose of chapter 10 echoed again in verse 32 when it says, These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies and their nations, and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. The purpose of the table of nations and the genealogy we read here is that it is there to reveal the creation of nations. To reveal the creation of nations. 
With the exit of Noah and his three sons from the ark, we see a second starting point for human history. They have been able to press the do-over button. They're getting a second chance at it. And here we see them at this point of the genealogy. It is here to show how the peoples of the earth then descended from Shem, from Ham, and from Japheth. And they were scattered into the world. Now, though genealogies, they don't seem to have a whole lot of importance to us today. Um, Names are very important to God. But before we go further, I want to give you a few items to note about this particular genealogy. The first thing we need to note is that it's not in chronological order. It's not chronological. The story of the Tower of Babel in chapter 11 actually chronologically precedes the events of chapter 10. The family listing in this chapter is the result of what happened in chapter 11. The chapter on the Tower of Babel, though, will provide us with a commentary on why the nations were scattered abroad. So it's not chronological. The next thing we need to note is that it's not a typical genealogy. It is both a genealogy and an atlas showing the movements of people in the ancient world. It acts like an atlas as well. It not only gives us the names of the descendants, but it also says that the people spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, in their nations. So it shows us where they moved off to when they were scattered. It provides us with the names, an atlas, and even a history book of sorts. The third thing we see here also is that it's not complete. It's not exhaustive in its completeness. Now there are 70 names that are listed in the genealogy. 70 names there. And this was important because the list was not exhaustive, but it was more symbolic in nature. This was not an accident. It was done with much purpose by the author. Now, Jen Wilkins, our author, will point out that we saw a genealogy of the unrighteous line of Canaan, or excuse me, of Cain, that had seven names, and in it going back to Adam. And then we saw the righteous line of Seth. And I don't know if you remember what, how many names were listed there. I didn't off the top of my head. But there were 10 names listed there, 7 and 10, and now we see 70 names listed. You see, the numbers 7 and 10 in the scriptural writing signified completeness in God's purposes. Now, it was not exhaustive in including all of the names there, but it was complete in expressing the purpose and the heart of God here. So Moses is making a point with this list of names. And it was an approach that was often used in ancient writings and particularly with genealogies of this kind. Here's the final thing we need to note before we get into the scriptures. We need to note that it's not easily transferable to modern times. It's not easily transferable. Now there are some names that will be um, the same today as there were then, but over the many years since this took place, names have, nations have changed their names, people have moved, there have been wars and things that have caused migrations to occur, and so it is not always easily um, identifiable, but there will be some that we will find out, and we're going to do our best to point those out tonight. So looking at the text, Genesis 10 verse 1, did you notice something about those very first words. These are the generations. We have another generation statement. Moses is now signifying a new portion of scripture for us to pay attention to. He comes out of the end of chapter nine where he is told of Noah's prophetic word that was spoken over his son's descendants. 
And then he comes and he says, these are the generations. He's signaling there's a stop between that and now we're gonna go to something else. Every time you read the book of Genesis from now on, I hope that when you read the words, these are the generations, it's gonna pop right out at you because you're gonna know, oh, we're talking about something new here. It's almost like a page is turning. So look at Genesis 10, verses two through five, and we read about Japheth's descendants. Now, I'm gonna just put a disclaimer out there. I'm gonna attempt to say the names you, please don't laugh too loudly at me if I mess them up. You can giggle a little bit, but that's it. All right, here we go. Are you ready? You didn't answer. Are you? They answered in the front here. Nobody else ever answers me but them. Do you know that? None of you answer except for my sweet ladies at the front here. I'm going to ask you more time. Are you ready? Thank you. Okay, I'm ready too now. All right, Genesis 10, the sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tiras, the sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Ripa, Rip, see, look at this, Ripheth, and Tagarma, the sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Ketim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, in their nations, the sons of Japheth. We have 14 families that are listed here from Japheth's descendant. He is the father of what we understand to be the Indo-European nations. The Indo-European nations. And we read of the seven founding fathers in Japheth's line, and it goes on from there to tell their descendants. But a modern-day listing of where they might have occurred and where they might have settled would be some, our understanding of Germany, Wales, Russia, Armenia, Turkey, Greece, Spain, and Italy. And there's something that history has to say about the common language that united the Indo-European nations here. This is so cool. The Webster's New Collegiate Dictionary states that the Indo-European languages are the most important linguistic family of the globe comprising the chief languages of Europe together with the Indo-Iranian and other Asiatic tongues. In the 19th century, comparative and historical study of these languages, called also Indo-Germanic or Aryan languages, established their descent, listen to this, from a common ancestor. They say this language sourced probably in Eastern Europe by a people or a group of people unknown perhaps a mixed race. Here, if that doesn't make sense to you, let me tell you what that means. It means that there are linguistic evidences that point to a common language that united all these, showing that they share a common ancestor. Who was that common ancestor? Japheth. Japheth. They all came from him and they spread out. This is where you and I see the prophetic blessing of Noah spoken over Japheth when he said that may God enlarge Japheth. And we saw in our map study that Japheth's descendants spread far out and far wide. The Indo-European nations. That statement most definitely came true. But then he goes on and he says not only sons of Japheth, but now in verse 6, we're going to read about the sons of Ham. Let's read verse 6 through 20. These are the sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush were Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, and Sabteca. The sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. 
okay, there should be a little flag waving in your head, okay? Like, oh, we are familiar with the word Babel. Erech, Akkad, and Kalni in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ir, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kalah, that is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, Lehabim, Naphtahim, Pathrushim, Kasluhim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtarim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth. And the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zemurites, and the Hamathites. Afterwards, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for coming out. We'll see you next time. Kidding. Verse 18, afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza. Are we familiar with Gaza? The Gaza Strip? And in the direction of, here's another familiar names, Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. So here we have Ham's descendants. 30 families in total are listed here. And his people went south. Now Cush is the first of Ham's sons, and he has five sons and two grandsons listed. From Cush, you and I have modern-day Ethiopia. Now, some of your Bibles may have read in those first verses, um, in verse 6, instead of Egypt, some may Cush and then say Egypt, or some may say Mizraim. Mizraim is another name for Egypt. We know that Put founded modern-day Libya, and Canaan occupied the territory that bore his name. Now, this listing of Ham's descendants is important. And I'm going to tell you why, because this listing here for the Israelites, the people who were being those modern-day hearers of hearing what Moses was relaying to them, this would have been a listing of like a who's who of the enemies of Israel throughout their history. This was showing all of the people that they were going to have trouble with. And Moses is reminding his people, look, we're not just going to waltz into Canaan and be like, hey, guys, we're here. We're going to take it now. Thanks for occupying it for these days. And now God has promised it to us so you can move along. They're not going to do that peacefully. He's saying, look, these are the descendants of Ham. They are a hated. They hate us. They hate the Israelites. They hate God's people. And they, those Canaanites are going to work against you to annihilate you. And so preparing for this battle of sorts that they're getting ready to enter into, Moses wants them to understand and know the importance of knowing who their enemy was. They needed to know where the enemy came from. If I could just take a side word and just say and bring it to today, you and I have an enemy as well. And it is so important that you and I understand and that we call the enemy and call him for who he is and for what he is. We need to know his name. His name is Satan, and he is the father of lies. <coughs> his entire purpose is to steal, to kill, and to destroy. He is your enemy. But the thing is, Satan has little minions, little descendants of his own that also he employs to also steal and to kill and to destroy. <coughs> hey, Shannon, if I could have some water. <coughs> I'll keep talking. But one of the keys to walking in victory, both for the Israelites in that day and for you and I today, is we need to know who the enemy is. Now in verse 8, we read a parenthesis of sort in the text. 
where we read about a man named Nimrod. Now, Nimrod, and this is diverging from the regular genealogical pattern, Nimrod here we read is important because this is the first time the word kingdom is used in the scripture. We've had a lot of firsts, haven't we, in Genesis 1 through 11. And anytime we see a word that shows up over and over in scripture, anytime we see that show up, it's important to note when was the first time that it came up. And here we see the first time the word kingdom is used is in reference to Nimrod. Now Nimrod also speaks to the mighty men of old, the Nephilim. Do you remember the Nephilim? Thank you so much. The Nephilim were the dangerous offspring that were produced in Genesis 6 when we saw the righteous line and an unrighteous line that came together. And those people produced the Nephilim. Now we read the word mighty. He is called mighty three different times here. And it feels a little redundant. Like, okay, we get it. He's mighty. He's powerful. But they're letting us know he was a very mighty, mighty man. And we understand that in the terms of being mighty, not only in physical strength, but he was a tyrant. Nimrod was a tyrant. He is called a mighty hunter, but he's not in the sense of one who hunted after animals. He was not hunting game. This was a man who was hunting down people. He was hunting down people in such a way that he could ruthlessly conquer men and women and control them. He wanted to establish a kingdom, an empire. His heart attitude was that he was rebellious and defiant before God. Nimrod's name means the rebel. It means the rebel or to rebel. And we see his name being a reflection of his heart's attitude, where he was rebellious and defiant towards God. That was his attitude of his heart. But we do see his physical abilities. He was a mighty hunter of men, seeking to conquer and to control others. But not only that, not only was he mighty in in being a tyrant, but we also see his personal ambition You see, he united the people in revolt against God in building the city and the tower of Babel. A mighty hunter before the Lord is what it says in verse 9. That word before here could also be translated as against. The word before could also mean against. So we could read it that he was a mighty hunter against the Lord. He was shaking his fist against God saying, you might try to do, you say you are the creator of the universe and the king overall. No, I'm going to show you God. You see, in early in Genesis, we understood that sin was an individual act. Sin was clumsy. Um, the, Adam and Eve didn't exactly know what they were doing, but now it is so sophisticated where it is a now gone from an individual act to now we have a man who is not only sinning himself, but he is gathering others to do the same. Using the language of that time, the name, <coughs> the name Babel means the gate of God. <coughs> Excuse me, I am so sorry. <coughs> the gate of God. And we see his personal ambition here being to set up a world empire where he was the supreme ruler. <coughs> now Babel is going to become the city of Babylon. I'm a little hot too. I'm just gonna take a time out for like, can you give me like 15 seconds? I'm gonna regroup and then I'm coming right back, okay? I'm sorry, I'm kind of embarrassed that I'm doing this. I don't normally like to take a break. 
but I'm hot. And it's hot in here? Is it me? got one. Thank you. Now this one, if this one goes, I'm ready. Y'all are on it. I'm good. Okay. Break over. Y'all, I'm sorry. It's been a long three days. Okay. So we have Babel becoming the city of Babylon, which is very significant in Israel's history. Because we see that Nimrod is also going to establish another very key city that would war against the Israelites. Look at verse 11 of the cities that he established. Verse 11, we see that he went on into Assyria. Now, do you remember Assyria? If we think about Israel's history, I'm gonna give you a quick history lesson, just a brief one over the years of um, the Israelites. Now, 400 years after the Israelites enter into Canaan, they go into Canaan about 400 years after that, they establish, um, oh, excuse me, they, dis- they honestly, they rebel against the Lord and they split off into two kingdoms, a northern and a southern kingdom. Now, the northern kingdom we know, we know and understand to be Israel. The southern kingdom is the kingdom of Judah. Now, just 200 years after they have split, we see the northern kingdom of Israel being conquered by, do you know who? Assyria. And then, just about not quite 200 years after that, the southern kingdom of Judah is then conquered by, do you know? Babylon. Assyria and Babylon. You see, Moses knows Nimrod is an important person for them to know about because he is going to be establishing kingdoms that are going to war against the Israelites. They were definitely enemies, but also they were used by God to chasten the people of Israel when they were disobedient. These are major, major enemies of Israel. And as Moses is recounting these descendants of Ham and this one particular man, we need to have an important understanding again for you and I. There is an enemy against the people of God. And throughout scripture, we will read Babylon as an archetype of disobedience and pride and rebellion. Well, he's going to go on to list out Canaan's descendants, and he's going to speak of them not only as individual names, but then he speaks of them as a people group. Did you catch all those ites towards, um, let's see, down in verses 16 and down? That's a people group that he's talking about. And, you know, the, the hearers of that day would have been so familiar with that lineage because it also occurs 19 other times in the Old Testament. So they would have been very familiar with this particular listing of enemies of Israel. Now, when we understand this, we also read about Sodom and Gomorrah. We know that there are many lessons that we can learn from Sodom and Gomorrah, but that will come later. And in our homework this past week, the author had us read in the book of Leviticus. And there was a listing out of Leviticus 18 of the things that God was forbidding the Israelites to engage in as they entered into the promised land. It was a very uncomfortable list to read, wasn't it? And we might want to think, oh, why do we need to talk about such things? Like, why do we need to even address this? And yet we see there was a purpose because Moses knew and understood 
the, the listing of the things that God was forbidding the Israelites to engage in was being actively practiced in the land that they were about to enter into. He's saying, you need to know this exists and this is going, wants to steal your soul. This wants to kill you. It wants to rob your relationship with God. You need to know the dangers there. You and I, I'm gonna bridge it again to modern day. You and I need to not only know who our enemy is, we need to also know what our weaknesses are. We need to know what we might be susceptible to, even if it is uncomfortable, even if we would rather not speak of such things, and yet to know that every one of us has a vulnerability, every one of us has a particular sin weakness, and I promise you Satan will exploit that sin weakness if you live in a way that that place, that weakness is not guarded up and you are not held accountable and in community with other people. Satan will exploit that. And Moses knew it for the people of his day, and you and I need to know it. We need to name the enemy. It is Satan, and we need to understand that his spiritual minions are going to come after us spiritually, and that they are going to want us to be exploited with pride, bitterness, unforgiveness. Maybe it is through avoidance, through alcohol, drugs, sex, money, spending, I don't know, eating food. It could be any one of these things that Satan can use to gain control over our lives. Know who your enemy is and know your weaknesses. You see, in this listing, Moses was very specific in the names he included here. And they were the enemies of God's people. But what I love to know is that the listing of names did not just stop with Ham's evil line. But you and I know that our enemy, who is the spiritual one, has ultimately been conquered by Jesus Christ. And do you know who Jesus Christ, the line that he comes from? It's the line of Shem. It is, this leads us to Shem's descendants, which ultimately lead us to Abram, the father of the nation of Israel, and of Jesus Christ, who is the father of our salvation. And notice the linguistic connection between the name Shem and the Semites. We understand today, we understand, we talk about Semitic Jews. These are, this comes from the name Shem. Let's read and pick up in chapter 10, verse 21. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Aber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arpachshad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hol, Gether, and Mash. Arpachshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber was born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for his days on the earth was divided. And his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almadad, Shelah, Hazarmaveth, Jera, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha and the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. Now there are 26 of Shem's descendants that are listed. 26 of them. And this group of people ended up settling in the Middle East. <coughs> they were all the way settled in the north, the south, and the eastern ports, parts of the land of Canaan. And there are two names that we want to focus on in this list. And the first one is Eber, E-B-E-R, who's the great-grandson of Shem. His name means emigrants. His name is the root for the term Hebrew, 
Eber is the root of the term meaning Hebrew. So we understand that he is the father of the Hebrew people, and he was a contemporary of Nimrod. You remember Nimrod. And he would have seen and lived through the building of the Tower of Babel. And we're told that Eber had two sons, and the one that he mentions is Peleg, whose name means divided. Peleg is born during the time that the earth was divided by the work of God at the Tower of Babel. And he ever witnessed the work of God here. He saw it. And he's giving the hearers a time reference for what was happening and when it took place. So we see that the people then were dispersed according to the languages that they spoke. There it was again, verse 32. Now in chapter 11, we're going to come back to Shem's descendants. But for now, we read this echo and reminder of God's command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It repeats the purpose here of God's commands where he says that in their nations and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Here we see God has established the spreading of the nations. And the pastor Warren Wearsby has some wonderful thoughts that speak to our understanding of God's heart for the nations. Would you turn to Acts 17 with me? (coughs) (coughs) Acts 17, and let's pick up in verse 26. We're seeing that Paul is standing... And he's addressing the people of Athens. And he's standing in the Areopagus and he's giving a defense. He's speaking and giving word of testimony about who God is. Acts 17, verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. The first thing we need to note about the nations is this, that God is Lord over the nations. God is Lord over the nations. You see, God created all mankind and he is the one who has determined the time periods that people would live in and not just the time periods, but he has established the physical boundaries of where the nations would be living where they would live. I love, as one pastor has said it, history is still his story. Isn't that neat? The story of history is still his story because he is the one who has set all things in place. He is Lord over the nations. But we also understand that all nations belong to the same human family. We read that from one man, every nation of mankind was made. We are made of one blood and we come from the same family line. There is no one race or people that can claim superiority over one another. You see, this is why when we look at this, white supremacy is disgusting before the heart of God. And why racial injustices are disgusting before the heart of God. Because we all come from one man, it says. From one family line. Not one people is greater or better than another. Hitler didn't understand that. Many others, countless other dictators over the years have not understood that. And yet may you and I not miss the point that we all belong to the same human family. But we also see that God has a purpose for the nations to fulfill. As we look back at the prophecy of Noah in Genesis 9, and if you want to turn back there with me. We understand that Noah speaks this word of prophecy and that God has a plan that he will fulfill. 
In the words of the prophecy given here, God establishes Israel as his chosen nation. When we look back at those verses, chapter 9, verses 25 through 27, we understand this. What God has promised, he will perform. What God has promised, he will perform. We know this to be true. He says in verse 25, cursed be Canaan. And again into verse 26, let Canaan be his servants. Verse 27, again, and let Canaan be his servant. This was essentially fulfilled when Joshua leads the Israelites into the promised land of Canaan and they reclaim their rightful ownership over it. We also read that the blessing is spoken where he says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. You see, he is not blessing Shem. He is blessing the Lord who is the God of Shem in that it is showing us that Shem's line is the righteous line by whom the Redeemer would come. And then he goes on to Japheth and he says, enlarge Japheth. Do you remember Japheth and Canaan's descendants are not Hebrews, Japheth and Canaan's people, they are not Hebrews. And yet our author, Jen Wilkins, gives us further insight into this passage. When it says here of Japheth, let him dwell in the tents of Shem, you and I don't fully understand that. Like, we don't speak and just say, let, why don't you come into the dwell, my dwelling place of Pebble Brooks Lakes and come and, come and be dwelling under my, the covering of my abode. Like, we don't talk like that, do we? Do you talk like that? <laughs> no, I don't. But dwell in the tents of Shem means this. It is this understanding that may God enlarge Japheth and may it be as if he were an honored guest enjoying all the wealth of Shem. It's basically saying, come into my house and whatever I have is yours. Not beyond just whatever you can find in the fridge. Whatever I have in my bank account is yours. Whatever I have in my closet is yours. Whatever I have in my house, it is yours. Enjoy all the wealth that I have, he's saying. Japheth is to be invited into the tents of Shem and treated like family. This is what is amazing to me. This is where my mind gets blown. The gospel, we understand, was made available first to the Jew and then who? And then to the Gentile. Do you see that God is making a way and speaking a word of truth and prophecy here through Noah that you and I may be able to receive and hear the gospel as it comes to the Gentiles? Even all the way back there, God is making a way for us who are not of the Hebrew people to come and know the true saving gospel of Jesus Christ. That blows my mind to think that God way back then would make a way so for me, a Gentile, to hear the word of truth. You see, this is our story. We live as honored guests and we enjoy the wealth and the bounty of salvation through Jesus Christ. And the Lord makes a way through it. It is fulfilled through Jesus. This gives us confidence to know that finally God is concerned for all the nations. The Psalms speak over and over of God's heart and concern that the nations would come to him. You and I are given the command, the great commission out of Matthew 28, 19 through 20, where he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. God cares about the nations. We need to not only go across the world, but we need to be mindful of the nations that are in our own backyard because they are many. 
I am so thankful that our church mobilizes and is serious about getting out to the word of the gospel of Jesus Christ out to the nations, not just getting on a plane to carry the gospel, but weekly, week by week by week, taking the gospel to Immokalee, taking the gospel to the places in our town where people don't look like us, where people don't talk like us, where people, where their background is different. We carry the gospel to the nations because God's heart is for the nations. What's your heart for the nations? Does it beat in time with our Lord's? How do you look at those who don't dress like you, who don't talk like you, who don't look like you? How do you do that? You see, heaven will be a beautiful place of diversity where people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation will be joining in the song of the Lamb. You see, we have the establishment and the spread of the nations, the table of nations as we call it here, and it's a result of man's hardened disobedience. So let's go on to chapter 11. I'm gonna try to quickly get through this here as we look at the Tower of Babel. And the first thing we see that caused the division of the nations in the building of the Tower of Babel was that man revolted. We see man's revolt. Let's pick up in chapter 11, verse one. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole nation. We see their unity here, and that it does in fact precede chapter 10, because it says that the whole world had one language at the time, and this unity proved to be deadly. The unity of the people was deadly because it allowed them to have a concentrated effort for evil. They migrate to the land where Babylon will eventually be, and they built Babel under, do you remember who the builder of Babel was? Nimrod. Nimrod, the tyrannical ruler who conquered men in order to have a world empire. So now we have seen in a corporate revolt against God. Do you know what is so tragic about this? This was probably only about 100 years after the flood. They were not that far removed from when God had completely wiped people off the face of the earth. You see, man's widespread revolt against God will begin to manifest itself in certain attitudes and actions in the heart. At the core of it, we see pride. We see this understanding of pride. They absolutely ignored God's command to fill the earth. God had told Noah and he had told his people as they exited the ark, he said, be fruitful and multiply and what? Fill the earth. And they ignored God's command. Anytime you and I ignore a command or a calling of God, it is out of a heart of pride that looks at God and says, I know better than you, creator of the universe. It's ridiculous, isn't it? And yet that we act that way whenever we ignore God's commands just like they did. It is an act of pride rooted in a belief that we know better. Well, we see this pride manifested in several different phrases. They use the phrase in verse three, come, let us. Now we're familiar with that language, aren't we? We read of those words in Genesis when God created human beings, when God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit said, let us make man in our own image. And now we have these men three times using these let us phrases. 
And the men at Babel were attempting to assert themselves here as God over their own destinies, over their own lives. And these three let us statements will reveal the ways that pride shows itself in human beings. The first thing they said in verse 3 was, let us make bricks. Make bricks. This is a picture of self-sufficiency. You see, stones were not readily available for building in this particular area. And the text tells us with quite accuracy how they had intention to build. Using bricks, it says, for stone and bitumen for mortar. These people had to go out of their way to make the bricks. It wasn't an easy thing like, oh, there's a brick over here. Let's just, why don't we make a structure with it? They had to intention in their hearts to build the structures. It was a picture of self-sufficiency. The next thing they say, let us build a city in verse 4. And again, I'll mention that they were ignoring God's command from Genesis 9-1 to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You see, God was very specific in his commands to Noah and his family. Spread out. I don't want you in one place. Go away. Fill the earth and enjoy all that I have for you, he says. He's telling them, go out. Don't stay in one place. And yet they not only ignored God's command to fill the earth, but they did so with a one world order mindset. They were establishing political unity. And here they were doing so under Nimrod, who was hunting people down and was conquering them and controlling them. He was a tyrannical ruler. He was a tyrant. You see, when you and I, think about this for today, when you and I choose to ignore God's commands, when we ignore his commands, then what we end up doing essentially is we step out from underneath God's protection here. And the issue is this, you and I will be ruled by one thing or another. Something is going to rule over your heart and over your mind. When we choose to be stepping out and ignoring God's commands and walking in disobedience, we are ruled by Satan and the kingdom of darkness. And yet when we choose to walk in obedience to the Lord's commands, we are ruled by the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, stepping out from God's commands means we lose his protection We lose his presence and the awareness of his presence in our lives. He doesn't leave you, but we are not aware of his presence. We do not experience relationship and the depth of it with him. But what I love here is that we understand that the word of God says this, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. And he says in John 8, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You see, when we walk in disobedience, we're ruled by a tyrannical ruler like Nimrod. The people in establishing a one world order were being ruled by a tyrannical ruler of him, of Nimrod. And yet, if they had chosen to trust the Lord and to walk in obedience, they would have known ultimate freedom. You and I, when we choose obedience, we understand spiritual freedom and protection through him. These ancient people, though, they were disobedient and they did take themselves out from under God's protection Well, what else did they say? They also not only said, let us build a city, but they said, let us build a tower. It was self-focused spirituality. So now they're not only seeking political unity, but religious or spiritual unity. The understanding here was not that it was a tower like you and I understand. It was actually a ziggurat. 
a ziggurat, Z-I-G-G-U-R-A-T, ziggurat. And a ziggurat was a building that had um, stairs around it so that you could walk up to the top. It was actually less a, um, a tower straight up down and more of a stairway into the heavens. We can read that they not would only say, let us build a tower with, um, that reaches to the heavens, but rather it would read, let us build a tower and its top with the heavens. You see, they wanted to have a tower that would be so tall, not only as to reach the heavens, but as to have at its top the signs of the heavens, meaning the signs of the zodiac. You see, this was the establishment in the first place where we see a false religion being established. Where they were just ignoring God, but then they were worshiping something other, completely other than him. A self-focused spirituality is really no spirituality at all. And a false religion is anything that sets itself up to be worshipped other than Jesus Christ. Um, In a recent article here, Oprah Winfrey expresses perfectly the self-focused spirituality of our day. In talking about her inner voice and finding your own truth, she says this, Every human being is born with his or her own internal GPS system. If you get quiet enough and stop your head from spinning, ask yourself, what should I do? Just take a deep breath, because everything is in the breath. It's your life force. Or ask the question, what do I really want? What do I need? These are powerful questions, because most people have not yet answered them for themselves What will it take to make me truly happy? What fills me up? Most people, she says, have not asked those questions. I'm gonna tell you, I don't think the problem is that most people haven't asked the questions. I think the problem is that we've answered the questions, that we're living them out, and that most of us, and from our birth, all we care about is what makes me happy. What should I do? I'm only going to do what works for me. I don't know what she means with all this breath and life force business, but I don't know. But I'm telling you, the problem comes because this is their reality on our own. We only live for ourselves. That is self-focused spirituality. And as a believer in Jesus Christ, I understand that true happiness only comes by, by seeking to be holy through Jesus Christ. And as a byproduct of seeking holiness in him, I am supremely happy. There is great satisfaction when my life becomes not about me, but about something outside of myself, something bigger than me. My life is small. I want to be a part of something that is bigger and greater and beyond anything I could ever figure out. Our lives to be about Jesus, self-focused spirituality. But not only that, they also said this. They said, let us make a name for ourselves. And this piggybacks off of what we just said. They had, were driven by personal ambition. The city and the tower that they were building were monuments to their abilities and their accomplishments. They did anything they could to enhance their fame. You and I live in a world that says, let us make a name for ourselves. Make a name for yourselves. Be known. How many followers do you have on Instagram? How many people liked your picture on Facebook? In, our, in, in a sense, our sense of well-being is tied up and wrapped up in that sometimes. You know, sometimes we can also look outside of that and we also, in doing good things, we want to make a name for ourselves. We can pervert the service of the Lord Jesus Christ and being a part of his church when we begin to make service about me. 
when we won't serve somewhere because it will mess our hair up. I'm sorry, I cannot stand outside because, um, at the door because my hair is gonna get messed up with the humidity. Or we say, I'm sorry, I can't go to that particular service and serve because that doesn't fit, that's when I go to brunch. And that's not what I do every week. You see, when we make service about us, we are seeking to make a name for ourselves because ultimately the name that we're not most concerned about is not the name of Jesus, we are concerned about ourselves. See, we're not too far off from these people. This is where when I look at the, and I'm not far off. I will make it personal. I will say me. I am not far off from these people. And every day in my heart to cast myself before the Lord Jesus Christ and say, God, you know I love this name, Kristen. In my own pride and in my own selfishness and my sin nature, I care about myself. But Lord Jesus, Help me to repent of personal ambition. And Jesus, would your goal and would my ambition be the name and the renown of your great name, Jesus? I'm not far off from them. You see, they did this, all these things out of a fear. They said, lest we be dispersed over the whole earth. They were afraid that God's sufficiency was not enough. They knew God had told them to spread it out, spread it on out. <laughs> God had told them, you do not stay in one place, you need to move out. And they were afraid to be obedient. Has God ever called you to a season where he called you to spread out? Called you to a season where he wanted you to step out of your comfort zone? And I'm even thinking specifically about a season of aloneness. When I was in my mid-20s, before Eric and I got married, I became, I don't, it, it's ridiculous to say it now, but I was scared to death of being alone. And so I filled every minute of every day with activity and with people and with all the stuff that I could possibly fill it up with. And I was just going, 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 going. Well, um, and then I realized that I was never at home and I had read the words out of Proverbs um, chapter seven, verse 11. And that chapter is speaking about the wayward woman. And it says of her that her feet never stay at home. And God convicted my heart. He pierced my heart that even though I was not running about and committing adultery, I was still so afraid to be sitting alone and in quiet before the Lord. I was scared to death of what the silence would bring to me. I was scared to death of what the consequences of that would look like and what God might actually say to me if I was still in quiet long enough. God brought me to the end of myself with that. When God calls us to step outside of our comfort zone, sometimes we don't wanna do it because we are afraid of what obedience will cost us. But can I say this? Disobedience will cost us far more than obedience ever could. I'll say it again, like I've said it before. Leave the consequences of your obedience to the Lord. We don't have to be afraid of them because his grace is more than sufficient. If God is calling you to make a sacrifice in an area of your life, do it. Because I promise you, what it might cost you on this end, God is going to multiply the blessing 10 times over. We have seen it in our family financially when we choose to sacrifice and we say, Lord, we're gonna step out and we're gonna follow you and be obedient to however you are calling us to give. Our pastor talked about that this past weekend. He read that verse out of the Psalms that it says, where God tells them, open wide your mouth and I will fill it. The Lord will not leave you empty. 
He is not the God of emptiness. If you and I are giving out, whether it be monetarily, whether it be with time, whether it be our other resources, God will fill you up in that place. He promises to do so. Your disobedience will cost you far more than any obedience ever could. So we have all this pride here and it's showing itself in self-sufficiency, self-focused spirituality, selfish motives, selfish ambition. And God, we read of his response in verse five. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Isn't that funny? Even though they still tried to build the tower, God still had to come down to them. It's kind of ironic. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do and nothing that they propose to do now will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they all left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. The Lord himself says, let us go down. God is asserting himself as the true creator God by taking his language back. He has taken it back, and he is coming down to them, and he is seeing this act of rebellion, and he is going to speak and give consequences to their sin. But you know what? When God gives consequences to our sin, it is a gracious act ultimately from the Lord because as a gracious act, we read in verse seven, God frustrates the plans of man. God will frustrate the plans of man. Babel initially meant the gate of the gods, but now you and I understand it to mean confusion. God remains, he absolutely renames this project of theirs. He says, you may call it this, but guess what? I'm gonna call it this over here. We understand that our God is not the author of confusion as it says in 1 Corinthians 14, but there are some situations where God will humble his people in such a way and to keep them from going down a path of despair and destruction that will ultimately destroy them. That is a grace gift from the Lord. But we also see as a gracious act, God scattered where they tried to settle. When God scattered where they tried to settle, I wanna think about that word settle there for a minute. Those people physically settled in a place, but do you realize that when we refuse obedience for the Lord, we are settling for second best? When God calls us to scatter, there is a greater blessing, and we should not be so content with just settling somewhere. But when God says go, to get up and go, because you will be amazed at the blessing that he has for you on the other side. Because we understand this, God absolutely will accomplish his plans on the earth. And I'm not gonna read the rest of these verses, but we see that God preserves a family and a people. And in verses 10 through 32, we see that family line of redemption. But we also see God's faithfulness to watch over people and to fulfill his promise. I mentioned earlier my distaste for holding a magnifying mirror up to my face. Um, I definitely don't like it at times. It is definitely hard for me to hold the mirror of God's word up to my heart. I don't love it all the time, but I can tell you this, when I do, I don't need to be fearful of what God's gonna show me there. When God exposes something through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, he will usher in healing and freedom when I respond in repentance and obedience. What has the mirror of God shown you about your heart? I know it's shown me an awful lot about mine. Well, this study of ours has been a study of beginnings. And just to wrap up our time, 
Our author left us with these final thoughts on the beginnings of scripture. Early on, you and I talked about how that first creation account, when God spoke and he said, let there be light, it's actually pointing not just about that one created act, but there was a second creating act that it was speaking of. And it was that of a spiritual sense when God spoke and light entered into your heart where it once was darkness. Now, Jesus, who is the light of the world, illuminates your life. That is the second creating act. We understand 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? A new creation. And as a new creation in Christ, you and I don't have to work. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. So we have God speaking that finished work over the first creative act. And we have Jesus Christ speaking the finished work at the cross there. But there is not, that is not the final created act that we will see. In Scripture, in Revelation 21, you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read it to you. In Revelation 21, we read of the final creating act that God is going to accomplish for his people. And he says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said to me, listen to these words, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The God of creation that we read about in Genesis 1 is the same God of creation that we read about in Genesis 21. And he is about making all things new. And in my heart, everything within me cries, come, Lord Jesus, come. Make all that is here, make make it all right again. Longing to experience the new creation, the new heaven and the new earth. You see, our God is at work making all things new in your life and in mine. And until the day when it ultimately comes together, may you and I live as the new creations he has made us to be. In closing in prayer together, I want to read the words and the song of praise that will be spoken before the throne. So if you would go ahead and close your eyes and bow your heads with me. And we see the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Lord, for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Father God, we praise you and we we cry out, worthy are you, our Lord. Worthy are you, God, because all things, all of these things, Lord, and we ourselves, we come from you. You are the origin of it all. And Father, we exist not only from you, but we exist for you, Jesus. 
So Father, as we understand and as we long for the new and final creation to happen, God, may we live as the new creations you have made us to be through Jesus Christ. Every single day, displaying the glory and the beauty of our creator, God. Jesus, I pray a prayer blessing over my sisters that we would know the freedom and fulfillment that there is in walking as your people. In obedience to you, God, may we heed these words of warning. But Lord, not be fearful of what the mirror of your word may expose of our hearts, but God, hopeful, because God, you are making all things new, myself included, and I thank you for it, Jesus. For it is in your precious and your powerful name that all of your daughters say it together, Amen and amen. Ladies, be blessed. Thank you for praying for us in the coming days. We will come back next Wednesday. It'll be a precious time together. We'll look forward to seeing you next time. And sign up for an enricher class. <laughs>